So we've been working our way through the book of Colossians, one verse or one paragraph at a time. And, and this morning we come to a, a quite a complex but very practical passage of Scripture uh, in the letter to, to the Colossians. And it's probably a passage that should be taught on for about three hours, not 30 minutes. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 this morning. We don't have it on the screen, so if you, uh, if you want to read along, you'll have to have a Bible open in front of you, or your fake Bible uh, on your tablet or your phone. And uh, <clears throat> I have a bit of a confession to make to you this morning. Uh, I really did not spend as much time meditating and <clears throat> doing research on this passage like I normally do, because I was a little busy mopping up. Uh, our, our place got flooded on Monday night, thanks to the uh, record-breaking rainfall that we had. And we've never had a drop of water in our basement in the 11 years that we've lived there. In fact, I was kind of proud of the fact that we had a dry basement. <clears throat> Until I went down on Tuesday morning, after I heard the sump pup go on and off and on and off, and uh, realized that we were flooded. So the rest of the week has been fairly busy, and I should uh, spend about another 10 hours on this message in order for it to percolate, but it's as complete as it can be, and you're going to get it. Are you ready for it? Okay. Let's look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. I'm going to read right through to verse 1 of chapter 4. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So here in this passage, we have a series of comments or admonitions that are directed successively to wives and husbands, children and parents, and then slaves and masters. <clears throat> There's no grammatical relationship between this passage and the passage that goes before us. So in some sense, it, it looks like it stands alone. But I think there is a clear theological connection with the passage just before us. If you glance back to verses 12 through 17, you see that Paul is talking to us here about the clothing that we should put on this new self that we receive from God as a gift of His grace. When we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we put off the old and put on the new, and now we need to get dressed up. We need to put something on instead of just our birthday suits. And he talked to us about love and peace and gratitude. Remember that from last week? Um, he speaks about the way in which the new self should be clothed or dressed for spiritual success. And we talked about that last week. And then moving into verse 18, he begins to lay down the rules that should govern behavior 
in a Christian household between husbands and wives, uh, children and parents, and then the domestic or household uh, servants that were in the home. So it's a very practical section of the letter. The book of Colossians as a whole is about the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the main theme of the whole letter. Uh, in light of the false teaching that was creeping into the church of Colossae, Paul said, no, there's only one who is supreme and only one who is sufficient, and his name is Jesus. And so we have, uh, so far in the letter of Colossians, we've considered the, the cosmic fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, we've also looked at the, the implications of his fullness. I mean, he fills the whole universe with his, with his knowledge and his supremacy. We've examined the implications of his supremacy uh, for every area of life. <clears throat> and I think we agreed that Jesus should have the supremacy in everything, because that's exactly what the Bible says. He should have preeminence. He should have supremacy in everything. And so now, now beginning in Colossians 3.18, he talks about the practical implications of the supremacy of Jesus in the home and how that works out in our domestic and later in our professional lives in the marketplace. We move, in a sense, from the theology of the universe to the theology of the kitchen and the living room. Verse 18. So first of all, we'll hear some advice to wives and husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, I've been around the block enough times to know that few statements will rouse the indignation and anger of our rights-demanding, power-seeking culture than verse 18. But this is God's word too. And whatever we think about this verse, uh, we need to come to terms with it. And I think we should avoid <laughs> the, the, the temptation to, to explain it away and, and just take it at face value. This is God's design for, for fullness and happiness in the home. And in Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul duplicates this very idea when he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, are there qualifications on, on this idea of wives submitting to husbands? Absolutely. Absolutely there are restrictions or qualifications, because submission is not a synonym for slavery or subservient menial bondage. That's not what the Apostle Paul has in mind here. And no woman should ever follow her husband blindly into sin just because he's the head of the home. Headship is not dictatorship. Headship is not lordship. It's not tyranny or authoritarianism. It's loving, tender, Servant leadership in the home and in the church. John Piper has written extensively on this concept, this idea, and I like his vision for biblical complementarity, and this is what he says. This is the way God meant it to be before there was any sin in the world. Sinless man, full of love in his 
tender, strong leadership in relation to woman, and sinless woman, full of love in her joyful, responsive support for man's leadership in the marriage relationship. No belittling from the man, no groveling from the woman. Two intelligent, humble, God-entranced beings living out in beautiful harmony their unique and different responsibilities. Sin has distorted this purpose at every level. We are not sinless anymore, but we believe that recovery of mature manhood and womanhood is possible by the power of God's Spirit through faith in His promises and in obedience to His Word. Now, this may sound like some sort of radical, fanatical, chauvinistic, narrow-minded hierarchy to some. And quite frankly, there are a lot of people who like to read those verses through that lens. I don't read it through that lens, and I don't think that's what it's intending to sound like. And I just wish I had more time to unpack all of this for you. At some point, I need to do that. But this, uh, this concept takes about uh, eight weeks to, to begin to understand and, and about 80 years to live it out. Today, let me just say that, let, let, let me say this, that if the Son of God is simultaneously equal with the Father and submissive to Him, which He is, simultaneously equal with the Father and submissive to Him, then it's absolutely, entirely possible for equality and submission to exist in a marriage relationship. Doesn't that make sense? And, and it, it, it should exist. That's the way the Bible presents it. However, we work that out in our individual homes. So if the Son of God is simultaneously equal with the Father and submissive to Him, then it stands to reason that equality and submissiveness can also coexist in the home. And besides, a husband who truly loves his wife will not behave harshly or try to throw his weight around at home. And obviously, Paul is, is speaking to a very specific culture at that time, but it's really not that much different today, is it? A lot of men can be really harsh and overbearing with their wives, and they should not be. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. And I know that's written to the general population, but I could say, Husbands... This is for you today. This text is for you. Love your wives. Don't be harsh. We believe that men and women are created equal in the sight of God. The wife is not inferior to the husband in any way, nor the husband to the wife. They, they, they live under the lordship of Jesus Christ as equals. You believe that, don't you? And, and they have equal access to the spiritual gifts that God, the Holy Spirit, brings to the church. And they have equal access to the throne of grace when they pray and so on and so forth. But at the same... So they are equal in the sight of God. But at the same time, they have different roles and unique responsibilities in the home and in the church. Okay. <laughs> Some of you are chewing on that. and That's fine. Chew away. But it is a complementary relationship that we're talking about here. And then from here, without explaining anything else, without giving a lot of supporting details, Paul just goes right on to give some advice to children and parents. Parents are going, bring it, pastor. Come on. We're ready for this. <laughs> children, obey your parents 
in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So once more, it's, it's daring and dangerous to, to summarize complex human relationships with such short statements, but that's what happens here. There's more information elsewhere, but this is what's happening here. He's summarizing these very complex relationships. And who among us would say that, that, that it's not complicated, being a parent? <laughs> it's a complex relationship between children and their parents. And he kind of summarizes the teaching in a very short statement here. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Bam! Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So the, we must remember the overriding theme of Colossians. Who can tell me what it is? What's the overriding theme? The supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. So the question is, how can children, little ones and not so little ones, bring honor and glory to God in the recognition of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus. And Paul says, that's easy. Just tell them to obey everything that their parents tell them to do. Obey your parents in everything. Why? You could come up with a thousand reasons, and, and I have too in the past, because of this and this and this and this and this. That's why you need to obey. You need to clean up your room because this and this and this, the cockroaches are going to get in there and all, you know, all kinds of stuff. Paul simply says, because it pleases the Lord. Just do it. Obey your parents and everything because it makes Jesus happy. I don't know why, it just does. God's word, I believe it, it's good enough for me. It just makes him happy when children obey their parents. And without obedience, mothers and fathers simply cannot exercise all the privileges of parenthood. You can't. You, you can't exercise all the privileges of parent and give, give your kids all that you want when they're disobedient. Or you wreck them. And, and that's a problem. We've got a lot of wrecked kids in, in, in adult bodies today. Because their parents indulged them and just get, gave them everything. In spite of the fact that they were disobedient little rugrats. Without obedience, mothers and fathers give less encouragement. And kids need a lot of encouragement today. But you give less when they're disobedient. Natural outcome, right? Natural consequence of disobedience. Without obedience, no constructive relationships can really be secured. So it's got to be there. It's critically important for, for us to teach children how to obey mommy and daddy. And believe me, it doesn't come naturally. Have you noticed? Obedience doesn't come naturally to kids. They have to be taught. It needs to be modeled. They need to, they need to be encouraged in, in how to obey. They need to be shown how to obey. We need good examples of obedience. We need to talk about it, reward it, encourage it, teach it. It's critically important. There's a lot riding on this, folks. Oh, what's riding on it? Oh, the, the, the health and welfare of the family. Uh, the, the strength of the church, uh, Canada. You know, no big deal. There's a lot riding on this. And some parents just treat it way too lightly. Way too lightly. Now, I'm not saying become a tiger mom. Although, you know, there's some benefit to that too. But teach your kids how to obey. I mean, 
I said it, there's a lot riding on it. And even secular humanists understand that. They, they get it. They understand why kids need to be taught how to obey. Let me read something to you this morning. I, I found this week. It's, it's, it's quite fascinating. Well, to some minds it's fascinating. To others it might be boring. But <laughs> the Minnesota Crime Commission, okay? Minnesota, State of Minnesota Crime Commission uh, conducted a, 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 a report and that was appointed by the governor of the state way back in 1926. So this goes back a ways. Every baby starts life as a little savage. This is a public document published by the state of Minnesota. Every baby starts life as a little savage. Now, some of you grandparents are starting to get your ire up. Just, just relax, because it's true. <laughs> He's completely selfish and self-centered. Huh? He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch, or whatever. Deny him these, and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He's dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no developed skills. All the kids are laughing. Uh, this means that all children, not just certain children, but all children are born delinquent. Take it to heart. Take it to heart. That pretty much lines up with Genesis chapter 3, doesn't it? And Romans chapter 3. And the, pretty much the rest of the Bible. Born delinquent, born into sin. And then goes on to say, if permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulsive actions to satisfy each want, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, a rapist. Wow. All the kidless couples are saying, that's it, I'm not having any kids. <laughs> I'm, done. I'm not going there. <laughs> you, you see, sinful human nature will always, always bend toward evil and not toward righteousness. Always. The natural bent is always toward wrong, not right. And we have Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of Mankind to blame for that. Thanks, Adam and Eve. Thanks to the serpent. We're all infected with this thing called sin. And right even from the... Yeah, these little... Celine Desiree? No. Yes. And that's why we need the gospel, friends. That's why we need gospel-centered churches. That's why we need to take the Word of God, even the tough passages like Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. We need to take God's Word to heart and walk in it and live in it and abide by it. So, so children need discipline, yes, and they need to learn to obey their parents and everything, yes. But even more than that, they need the gospel. Because without the power of God working in their lives, they can try as they might, but they'll never fulfill that need to obey completely. 
And so they need the gospel. They need the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ just as early as they can understand those abstract concepts. We need to gospel them. We need to teach them the gospel. We need to model the gospel. We need to love them to the cross. We need to love them all the way to salvation. That's why I'm so grateful for the kids gathering. I'm so grateful for all the people who volunteer to work with our children downstairs. I know they prepare during the week and they pray and they're praying for the salvation of these kids and they're, 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 they're just meticulous about presenting the gospel in various ways and gospeling our kids in the kids gathering so that these kids grow up godly. It's so vitally important. I'm, I'm grateful for Stephen Knight Messenger and his, his passion to build a youth group uh, in the gathering, that it's not just fun and games. I mean, we can't compete with, with all the stuff that's out there. We can't entertain the kids on a shoestring budget when they've got access to every kind of entertainment. But what we do have, the world can't offer. We have the gospel that can absolutely transform and change their lives from the inside out. So children need the discipline and they need to learn to obey, but even more, they need the gospel. Because ultimately, Jesus did not die so that your children could grow up good. Jesus died so that your children could grow up saved, so that they could understand the grace of God and repent of their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he died, so they can experience salvation. And then verse 21 goes on to say very quickly, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. The parallel in... (laughs) She did not like that verse. And her mother is now going to model for her... Oh, God, be with Nancy in this moment. Amen. (laughs) And Papa John. Go to the rescue, brother. Yeah, way to go, John. But, John, do not provoke your children, lest they become (laughs) discouraged. Hey, we're family here, right? Families can do that. (laughs) The parallel passage in Ephesians 6 forces, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Don't irritate them, don't frustrate them, don't provoke them, don't infuriate them, don't exasperate them. Some parents exasperate their children with a constant reign of criticism. You know, poor kids can't do anything right. Even the stuff they do right isn't right. Some some fathers provoke their children because every time their children go to them, they're grouchy and grumpy. And that's... Kids lose heart eventually. Still other parents exasperate their children with harsh or over-strict rules. I used to joke with my son Nathan. He'd come home, you know, in high school with a 98 on a paper or an exam, and I'd say, that's pretty good, but where are the other two marks? Always joking with him, you know, but I think some parents are, are really serious about that. Some children become disheartened because mom and dad are inconsistent. The only thing that those kids can count on is that their parents are going to be inconsistent. You know, they're always changing the rules, you know. And that line of disobedience, you know, the, the, the boundaries, of it, it's always changing for them. Everything's inconsistent. One day, mom lets me do this. A week later, she says, no, you can't do that. Well, last week, uh, be quiet, go to your room. 
Totally inconsistent. Kids become discouraged over that. And I've seen children provoked, and I mean provoked, because dad is never there. He's an absent father. And even when he's home, he's, he's gone. He's thinking about work, or he's on the phone, or checking the tablet, or whatever. He's just not there. Children get provoked over that. So parents, and dads especially, if we, if we want to have the fullness and freedom of the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ in our, in our primary family relationships, if we want the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus to be the bedrock of hope for our children and our grandchildren, then we must teach them the gospel and we must pray for their salvation and we must model what it means to live in Christ and we must discipline them in love and we must teach them to be obedient, first and foremost because this pleases the Lord. Not just because it makes you look good in public, but because it pleases the Lord. That's got to be the motivation. Forget about the other stuff. If Jesus is happy, who cares what the cashier thinks at the store? And we must pay careful attention to our own hearts and souls so that we are not living a hypocritical life, so that we're living out there in the light and in the gospel, so that we're not inconsistent and we're not exasperating our kids because of our hypocrisy. We do not want our children to become disheartened and walk away from the gospel. That we're agreed on, right? Amen. Well, finally, our passage today includes some advice for servants and masters. I, I, I think the equivalent today would be employees and employers. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there's no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I mean, this just, this just covers so much territory, and, and there's just so much to say here. Once I got going on it, I thought, oh my goodness, what was I thinking trying to cover all of this in one message? I really should have divided it up into at least three. Advice to husbands and wives, advice to parents and kids, and advice to employers and employees. And I'm, I'm sorry I don't have time to cover it all, but uh, ancient historians estimate that there were something like 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Uh, approximately half of the population of the Roman Empire in the, in the day were slaves. Practically everything was done by slaves, like it is in a lot of rich foreign countries today. You go into the Arabian Peninsula, and nationals don't do any of the work. They're all imported from the Philippines and other places, and China, mainland China, and other. Wherever they can get cheap labor, they, they bring it in. Well, they pay them, and it's not really slavery, unless you're one of the workers. But practically everything done in this day was done by slaves, even the work of doctors and teachers, strangely enough. Basically, the lot of a slave was not a very happy lot. 
Many times they were classified as things or as living tools that could get the job done. And in really dire, difficult situations, if they, if they died working, well, then they were just disposed of and they got some more slaves. But see, the preaching of the gospel, you can imagine what this did in the day. The preaching of the gospel, especially with its doctrine of, of mutual uh, equality, really raised the tension. It really raised the, the temperature in the Roman Empire when the gospel started being preached, that, that, that masters and slaves were equal in Christ. Woo! What you talking about? My slave is my equal? No way. Yes way. That is the gospel. So the advice Paul gives here in Colossians and elsewhere was ultimately revolutionary because in time it brought down the, the, the institution of slavery. But it was also immediately revolutionary in the sense that it brought freedom and fullness to whoever accepted Christ. Employer and employee, slave and master. It brought immediate freedom. It brought immediate fullness. It brought immediate emancipation, not only from sin, but from this bondage of the hearts. And so I think the same is true today, that you can have the fullness and freedom of Jesus and you can have the joy of the Lord no matter what you're doing, no matter what your station in life, no matter what your occupation or your business ownership may be or may not be. You can experience this fullness and and freedom in Christ. You can have the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus operating in your sphere of life and influence regardless of what you do. It doesn't matter. So in order for Christ to bring His supremacy and sufficiency to bear upon life, He must bring it to what we do for a living. Employer or employee. Now let me give you just a couple random thoughts about these verses. And I know some of you are saying all of these thoughts so far have been random. First of all, because of the fullness and freedom of Jesus, we can be liberated from working and living just to please the boss. Now wouldn't that be a good thing? If we could somehow get out of the spiral of living just to please the board, just to please the boss, just to please the supervisor. But some of us live under that bondage. And, if, and uh, Colossians 3.22 says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Yes, there is that injunction. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, the word eye service is an interesting one. It could mean the work that is done because the boss has his eye upon you, okay? But it could also mean the work that's done with a view to catching the eye of the boss. But no matter how you twist it, no matter how you look at it, it, it's still a matter of external appearances. The employee does nothing more than what he has to in order to please the boss. He doesn't go above and beyond. He doesn't go the second mile ever. You do nothing more than what's required to stay in the boss's good books. The appearance of obedience is there, but the reality is very, very different. You you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. That's just no way to live. That's no way to live. 
I remember when I, I moved 11 years ago to Windsor, I, within the first few months, I, I, met a, I met a young man who was a, an executive with a large, large international company. And he was doing very, very well. Told me that the previous year he had earned with salary and bonuses over $200,000. And he was about 30, I think. And then he went on to say that, that uh, he felt that God had called him into ministry years before. But his family was so used to a certain standard of living that he felt that he couldn't go into ministry and that he had to keep making at least $200,000 a year. I'm thinking. The bondage that that brings is unbearable. Unbearable. It's just no way to live. In Christ, we have been unshackled from that prison. Now we can do what we do with sincerity of heart because we fear the Lord. We do what we do to serve the Lord Jesus as our boss, and that changes everything. When, when, you, when you think of Jesus being the boss of your work, it changes everything. Furthermore, another random thought, because of the fullness and freedom that Jesus brings, we can joyfully become the best worker in the joint. We can become the very best worker in that place. Whatever you do, work heartily. Work hard at it. Don't slough off. Don't punch out 10 minutes early. Don't take an hour and 10 for lunch when you get paid for an hour. Work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord, from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. Oh, remember, you're serving the Lord Christ. Christians ought to be the best in attitude, the best in dependability, the best in productivity, the best in integrity. We ought to be the best. Unfortunately, many times we are not. Christians who are employed by someone else ought to be faithful, hard, hard workers, earnestly working at it, or we're sinning against the Lord. And finally, because of the fullness and freedom that Jesus brings, we recognize the intrinsic nobility of work. Say, yeah, but you don't work where I work. There's nothing noble about it. Well, ultimately we're serving Jesus. Ultimately I'm working for the, as a Christian man or woman, I'm working for the Lord Jesus. Regardless of what I do, I'm, I'm working for Him. I'm serving the Lord Christ. And so that changes everything. So if I'm operating a backhoe, I'm serving Jesus. And that backhoe work that I do is noble and honorable work because I'm working for Him. If I'm cleaning toilets at the Holiday Inn because that's the only job that I can get that will put bread and butter on the table for my family and a roof over their heads, then that work is honorable work and there's dignity in that work because I'm working in the name of Jesus. If I'm writing a paper for my professor in the class that I, I, I like the least, I need to remember that there's a goodness about that simply because Jesus is present in the process. Does that make sense? If I'm a doctor or dentist or pharmacist, if I'm a lawyer or member of parliament or the mayor of Kingsville, someone other than Jesus pays my salary 
thanks be to God. But he's still my boss with a capital B. He's still in charge. And I need to work to please him. And that changes everything. And the work that he's called me is to do, no matter what it is, whether I'm baking pies or constructing a, a freeway, it's honorable work because I'm an ambassador of Jesus and I'm his representative right there. And then Paul takes a moment quickly to address the employers in the audience and he says, Masters, bosses, employers, treat your bond servants, your employees justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Remember, under Roman law, slaves had no rights at all. None. So this is, this is radical, absolutely radical teaching. Radical teaching in the day and age. Some might think it's still radical teaching because there's not a lot of equity and there's not a lot of justice in the marketplace today. But the guiding reality for the Christian employer, he's talking about Christian masters now, You've got to treat the people who are your domestic servants with fairness and justice because you both serve the same master. You are brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, and that makes all the difference in the world. Employers are obligated to treat their employees justly and fairly. And I don't know that there, there needs to be anything more said about that. It, it's pretty clear, isn't it? Like, there's your nose, there's your hand in front of your face, it's just that clear. So let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, the, the dailiness of relationships makes this scripture so relevant because life is all about relationships. We love you and we love anybody only because you first loved us. So, Lord Jesus, help us to love the members of our immediate family in fresh and creative ways. Our marriages and parenting are, are always in need of your grace. Lord, bring your kindness, your compassion, patience, and perseverance to bear upon these family relationships, I pray. Help us to provoke one another to love and good deeds and not just provoke one another. Lord, show us how to give each other feedback lovingly and receive it non-defensively. Grant us mutual respect and hearts of encouragement today. Lord, would you please help husbands and wives to, to live out this passage in Colossians 3. And Lord Jesus, would you help parents and children to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel? Father God, Every employer and every employee in this room right now needs your grace to honor you through and in the work that they do each day. We need it. We need grace upon grace for that to happen. Lord, help us to love the irritating people in our lives, those that we try hard to avoid. Help us love the foolish people in our lives, the ones that just keep making the same foolish mistakes over and over again. Help us love the depressed and the sad people in our lives without judging them. Lord, help us to know how, how to love those who have hurt us and keep hurting us. For we don't want to grow old bitterly. 
We don't want to fertilize the root of bitterness in any way. And Father, this morning we also want to pray for the the people of Israel and the Palestinian people. And God, we pray for peace in Iraq. We pray for the persecuted Christians in various regions of the world today. We're so aware that while we meet in air-conditioned comforts at Roseland Golf Course, there are people who have lost their homes and lost their lives and lost loved ones. Our churches have been bombed and Christians are being persecuted just because they believe. Father, we also pray for the racial tension that's flowing out of Ferguson, Missouri these days. Oh God, the world needs your love. Pour out your love upon us, Lord Jesus. We want to pray all of this in your faithful and compassionate name this morning. Jesus, Jesus, amen, amen.